Hello and welcome to episode 70, the episode I've been waiting for uh, for a while on the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and uh, today, Joey Barrington joins me for a great chat on the podcast. Uh, I've been stalking him for several, uh, f- uh, well, basically ever since I decided to uh, to launch this podcast and, uh, you know, I tracked him down a little bit there in uh, in Dubai during the Super Series. We, ch- we chatted for a bit. And uh, finally, uh, it came to fruition, and he did not disappoint. Uh, I know you're going to really enjoy this. We talk about uh, everything from the British Nationals, which just wrapped up. Um, he opens up quite a bit about uh, why he stayed away from squash as a junior, and then uh, the Titan Force, uh, that is uh, Del Harris, how he uh, inspired him to take up the game again. Uh, well, uh, he was uh, going through a tough time in university, and that really got him back on the right track. Uh, we talk about, of course, uh, his legendary uh, father, Jonah Barrington, uh, what he was like as a player, uh, all the sor- all the sorts of uh, stories you hear about the training, uh, particularly the ghosting. Uh, in fact, uh, we get into talking that how uh, how Jonah was sort of uh, sort of invented uh, ghosting and. Uh, how he and maybe one or two others uh, brought uh, squash uh, to the mainstream. Of, of course, you can see Jonah. He was uh, on quite a few, uh, I guess back in the day, they would have been reality TV programs. They'd do these fitness uh, uh, fitness uh, test matches with uh, with. Uh, superstars from other sports and he would participate and uh, uh, that that was a lot of fun back then and he yeah definitely was the face of squash back in the day so we talk uh, about Jonah as a player and how he became a uh, guiding force uh, for Joey once he uh, started playing professionally again and had a and as we uh, many of us know Joey had a very good uh, professional career getting up as high as I believe as 24 in the world Joey and I also talk quite a bit about the Olympic bid, uh, squash TV, iRackets, uh, Peter Sellers, the aesthetic intimidation in squash, you name it, we talk about it. So here we go. Today, uh, I'm really happy to have on, uh, he's the face of, uh, of squash TV. He's a former top 30 uh, PSA player himself and uh, currently uh, one of the ambassadors for iRackets. Uh, uh, he's behind the scenes working on that uh, initiative. So I'd like to talk to him about that today as well. Uh, Joey Barrington is on the podcast. Joey, great to have you on. Yeah, great to great to be on finally after a fair few months. But uh, I've seen the ones uh, I've heard some of the ones uh, previously, and you've, you've had some really good, uh, some really good uh, gentlemen and uh, ladies. You know, um, absolutely a really good variety. But so yeah, great to be on finally after. the this time yeah absolutely yeah we, we i did uh, meet you briefly uh, and we talked a bit about it there in in dubai with with pj i was with my buddy uh, max withers the the uh, yes. the psychologist yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah he's a character yeah yeah oh yeah i know him from from way back in, in canada but um anyways uh joe now I, I noticed you uh you were recently in a warmer climate uh, i believe for a bit of r and r i could be mistaken uh, but I noticed that on on Facebook or Twitter or something. Maybe working on that aesthetic uh, intimidation <laughs> factor that, <laughs> you, know, that you bring to the broadcast booth. Yeah, I know. Um, no, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. A, I went on holiday with my family. It was my 40th birthday just a couple of weeks ago in January. So okay, we decided to scoop our little man off. Um, he's still not at school yet, so we could just kind of grab him and take him out of nursery. And we just went to Mauritius, which was amazing. So, oh, lovely. 
Yeah, yeah so it's a good preparation for uh, the minus temperatures of Chicago, which I'm leaving for in a few days. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, I've heard the weather. Uh, apparently, it's uh, starting to become a, a slightly uh, less frigid, but um, uh, yeah, that doesn't matter because it's still going to be sub. Uh, it's going to be around sub twenty. Yeah, I know. Luckily, we're uh, you know we're indoors at Union Station, which I can't wait for that. I can't wait to uh, check that all out and that whole scene there, that station. They filmed the Untouchables in that station. Oh wow, yeah, that's going to be amazing. You you could sort of do uh, do something with squash TV, sort of that that scene where the baby carriage goes down there. <laughs> I know PJ could. Uh, I could have the pram. PJ could easily fit in a baby carrier, and I could, <laughs> I could uh, redo that scene. That wouldn't be a problem. I'm sure. Yeah, would be yeah. Want to take some shots at us and some other people in the PSA? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now uh, the the British Nationals had just wrapped up last night, and uh, I'm pretty sure you uh, probably watched the finals there. Uh, so, did you watch the finals? And how no, impressed? I didn't, you, I didn't sadly. No, no, I, I missed that one. Missed <clears throat> I missed it. But um, I, you sent me a message about that, so. Uh, yeah, no, it was obviously uh, Nationals has always got a great, um, a great history, the British Nationals. You know, you've got all your national championships going around different countries, but the British Nationals has always had a huge amount of strength and depth. It's a little bit weaker um, in this last phase than it has been, but you've still got some uh, pretty awesome players. And uh, yeah. let, me know, let me know the, uh, what you thought, thought of the final. Well, I just thought, I mean, I was going to ask you this. I mean, uh, James Wilstrip looked like he was – 20 years old last night, the way he was moving around the court. He, he was moving as quick as I've ever seen him for a big guy who, you know, generally that might have, if you were to say any part of his game was weak, which you can't, but uh, uh, it's just his ability to, his quickness, I guess. But he seemed to yeah. be moving, you know, really well. And Daryl was definitely trying to up the tempo. So given that, I mean, how impressed, I guess, over the last little while, I guess, uh, with, with James in the twilight of his career, uh, would you be with the, with the level of play that he's produced? I mean, he's, he's one, of the, one of the, you know, from the golden, I always named it the kind of golden period of all these guys that had been kind of world champions, world number ones that were all playing at the same time and you just had them stacked on top of each other. And James is, is one of my favourite players to, to watch and commentate on um, and the fact that he is the build that he is and playing um, that level and moving as you say if he's moving like that then that's fantastic news for the world championships it just adds to the adds to the mix again because obviously there's there's some players missing with French, with the French general and stuff and yeah. you know I would, I would say that the strength and depth has gone slightly lower than what it was a few years ago sadly but hopefully that will come back but yeah no James is is a is a is a wonderful player, great temperament, and and some of the best ball control in the in the modern game, really for me. And um, I've I've witnessed many battles um, on squash TV commentating. Obviously, Commonwealth Games was quite emotional for me as well that he won that because everyone was dying for him to try and get the Commonwealth Games gold. Yeah, and also from a personal point of view, I played him. I had some big matches with him over the years, and uh, managed to win a couple here and there. Lost more than I won, but. I used to come off court and you'd feel that you'd, you would be disappointed that you'd lost, but the experience of playing him was so fantastic that you, it was, it was very unusual. The only other player I kind of had that feeling was with, was with Shabana as well. They just, the way they played the game was very clean and very, very controlled. And 
used all four corners and that you upped your game. You played a lot better squash to to obviously compete with them. And it was a really it was a really unique feeling coming off court with them, having possibly lost to them that you just you'd played brilliantly and, it, and you actually enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. No, well, you know, you as much as you try and kid yourself about enjoying it, you know, there's a lot where you don't because you're usually carrying a little bit of a niggle or, you know, you're playing a bogeyman or a player that you, you obviously struggle with or whatever it may be, but it's business with money and points and you can't enjoy the process as much as uh, you would like to. No, I mean, he was in fine form. Uh, I didn't see any of his matches early, earlier in the week, but I did see, uh, obviously I watched last night and he was impeccable. I mean, the marksman, I guess, is an apt name for him because he's, uh, uh, you know, his, his uh, short game was unbelievable, and his length and his lobs and his movement, uh, everything was on, on the mark. If his, movement, if his movement, as you say, was working very well, then like I said before, he's going to be a real ringer for any of those higher-ranked players in, in the World Championships coming up. Because if he's able to get his body going, then you can't question his skills and his, his ball control. So, yeah. you know, he, he made a big... Uh, Scalping a few years ago in the World Championships in Seattle where he took out El Shabagi in the quarterfinals with a, an unbelievable display. So he's definitely got it in him. So fingers crossed yeah. he'll bring that to Chicago for squash fans. Yeah, definitely. Well, he was shot out of a cannon last night, it seemed. And uh, uh, another, you mentioned it earlier as well, his temperament. I mean, one thing I noticed, uh, I mean, you don't see it as much as back when you played with, with guys like, uh, like Jonathan Power and uh, uh, Palmer and, and the fellows who would, who would go at it with the officials. I swear he had at least six or seven opportunities to even just question a call, and he didn't. Yeah. He, he just said, "Okay," and, and turned around and uh, and and returned the next serve. Yeah, I mean that's that's he's that was the that's the Malcolm Wallstrop school of coaching that he's come out of, um, and Malcolm has that effect on all his players and, and if you don't toe the line with Malcolm uh, with that attitude then he you know he shows you the door so you know <laughs> yeah. from a very early age and, and it's refreshing you know you, it's great to have characters and you know from being a from a squash tv point of view from being a pundit on the sport it's huge to have characters you can't have robots on there and stuff you need some a bit of madness and all the rest of it but it's lovely to have that kind of um you know that purist kind of side from James. The other, the other side that knowing him as a player, and not going into too much, but he is—he's very quirky. So there are certain things that we pick up, pick up on as commentators of mannerisms and the way he does <laughs> stuff on court that he doesn't intentionally. He's not trying to be funny, but they are very funny. Um, like, like what would uh, what would one of those or. The things it's just that, stuff, um, stuff with the lights and stuff. He, he, does, he yeah. always does this where he kind of cups his eyes over and is trying to look at the referees going on about the lights because he's very softly spoken. So yeah. it, it, when he's trying, he's not shouting at the referee. And then, and then he does a thing about hearing, not hearing the ref. There was a period <laughs> where he could go around kind of digging. It looked like he was digging holes in the court because it, he was very paranoid about sweat on the court. Falling uh, yeah. Yeah, he he's one of the more paranoid uh, guys when it comes yeah, to that. Yeah, he was there literally just scrubbing away like he was digging a, a hole. Um, uh, <laughs> the There's the stuff we pick up on and the crew, actually. The crew are very perceptive, our camera guys and our, our, our director and producers. They've all seen a lot of squash now and they pick up on all, all these idiosyncrasies. So we have quite a lot of good jokes going around about <laughs> stuff. 
it's nice. It's nice to see that and, and try and bring that to the viewers a little bit without it becoming too kind of Monty Python, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, uh, on the other side of the equation, uh, Daryl had, a, had a, an amazing event as well. It almost looked like he was going to be out in the first round. He came back from two love down and again uh, later on in the tournament, did the same thing, managed to get himself into the final. And he, he I mean, he played well last night too. So what does that say about, about his game? And he's a, he's a bogeyman for, for a lot of the top guys. In fact, he's got Ali Farag in round one and uh, you know, he's been known to pull off an upset here and there as well yeah I mean he gave Ali Farag a hard time in in New York and a couple of years ago he he played Ramya Shaw in the world championships in Cairo and it was a 3-1 for Ramya Shaw but that was pretty much the best I've seen Daryl play and you know he's yeah he's a he's, he's a ringer I mean he, he's uh he's a great competitor and he gets he's had some terrific results in his career obviously he's had a very 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 good career and he yeah I mean this is encouraging to hear these things it's very encouraging there's the motivation. It's the world championships. The prize money for that event is is extraordinary. It's the biggest it's ever been. Yeah. So they're all gunning gunning to get through rounds to you know to try and take advantage of that financially as well as you know everything else. So it's important. It's so important to have these guys outside top ten that have been in you know top ten and beyond and and that can still cause some upsets. You don't want the predictability coming back into the sport if you know Absolutely, what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had that, we had that for years. Like I say, with the golden period, where we were so blessed that when it got to quarterfinals, even sometimes last sixteen, people didn't know who was going to turn out, turn over the win in the tournaments. You know, it was yeah. it was a real tough call. And and Rami Ashore's missing. I'm not sure if he's playing the World Championships. I, I need to because I'm not. I'm no, I think he, he pulled out. He pulled out. So he's, uh, yeah. he's you know he's missing once again, and things aren't looking good for him. And he's obviously one of the greats of the game for me. And and so you've got the French general out, Nick Matthews newly, newly retired. And, and so it starts to open a bit of a, you know what I mean? There's, a, there's, a, yeah. there's quite a vacuum to fill now. Um, and uh, Well, hopefully players- uh, someone takes that up. I mean, there, there are some young guys, or there are some players out there who could potentially fill the void. Uh, I mean, guys like Diego Elias, uh, uh, Joel Macon, although he's, uh, he's just back from injury. Um, and then a couple of new Egyptians on the block as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, I mean, there's plenty of Egyptians. I mean, I saw, uh, I saw the, I've nicknamed him the Raging Bull already, the uh, Mustafa Asal who was playing. Oh, yeah. Egypt. Yeah. Champion. I mean, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's in the draw in, in this one. Uh, yeah, no, he is. I mean, it's, uh, you know, this, uh, and the women, the Egyptian women are unbelievable. I mean, oh. I've said this very top end they're playing squash that has never been seen in the women's tour and then you've got you know more of the younger Egyptian ladies coming up so you know it's it's their time at the moment that's for sure absolutely now I'd be remiss not to you know mention uh, on the women's side at the British Nationals uh, Tessney Evans and she just won uh, her second in a row and she beat out yes. uh, Emily Whitlock who uh, I uh, must be happy with, with getting to the final there as well so uh, Tesney looked very, very uh, solid and, and could potentially uh, uh, be one of the dark horses there at the World Championships, World she's Open. A great, she's a great player to watch. She's very, very intelligent on court and she's mm-hmm. got a lot of, she's got a really good fiery fighting spirit to her, but she knows how to play the game. She's very, very clever. And again, she's talking about ball control. She's got excellent ball control. Yeah. And she makes it look quite simple and she's responded really well to the lower tin. Um, 
and yeah, I mean, winning the nationals for the second time, being a Welsh a Welsh player, Welsh lady is is fantastic. Big confidence booster for her, and yeah, I mean, she's the women's is starting to get really, you know, the level of the women's squash, particularly in the top ten, is is very very impressive. And yeah. um, it's a lot more it's, unpredictable uh, uh, than the men's is. right now. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's uh, and and when they for them when they get to call the final stage, I mean, you get matches that can really go on you know, one hour 30, one hour 40 and, um, and five game thrillers. And it's, um, it's really exciting to see. They've, they've done brilliantly in adapting to the lower tin. They really have. It's brought the women's game on tenfold. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Now, uh, Joe, I'd like, uh, if you don't mind, like to take a look back at, uh, at, your, uh, at your days as a player and, and uh, your foray in the squash, I guess. Um, now, you didn't play much as a junior, if, if not at all. And uh, but uh, squash still must have been uh, a big part of your life. Uh, how did you? How did squash manifest itself in your life back then when you weren't playing, but yet uh, the son of uh, uh, Jonah Barrington, uh, who had I guess by the time you came around, uh, he was finished uh, as a uh, you know as a as a strong competitor on the tour, anyways. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a funny. It's a, it was it's a, certainly an interesting road. It's, it's, it was far from straightforward. I st- I did start playing um, when I was about kind of eight or nine, and a little bit. But I played a huge amount of other sports, and then I entered. I remember entering the national championships when I was ten, playing in the under twelves, and um, I was there with my dad. I was quite small for my age. I started growing when I was about kind of fifteen, sixteen, but. Um, Back then, I remember standing kind of next to these parents. I'd gone up there to Telford. It was in Telford with with my father. And I was just standing next to these parents. And they were talking about me like I wasn't there. And I got to the semi, semi-finals of the Nationals. And they were kind of saying, well, of course, he's going to get there and do this and has this. Because he's, he's basically got a, a silver spoon in his mouth kind of thing. And I... I looked at these people and I actually said to my dad, I don't, I actually don't want to play squash anymore. I, don't, I certainly don't want to play tournaments anymore. And I didn't play the, the next tournament after that national championships was the British university championships that I played when I was 20 years old. Mm. I never played another tournament again, squash wise in terms of, you know, the uh, individual side. We used yeah. to play a national schools for Millfield where I was at and I used to represent them, but I, I never played kind of squash through the summer because cricket was my main sport. Cricket was where I was actually going to take, um, I had a professional contract with Somerset County Cricket Club, which is a very good cricket club in England. Mm-hmm. And um, apprenticeship there at 16, I injured my back and went back to Millfield to do my A-levels. But for me, I always really liked team sports. I found the squash scene quite strange, particularly being obviously uh, Jonah Barrington's son in this country. And um, yeah, that, that, that kind of comment from the parents there, I just, it was very strange and I just didn't want to be around those kind of people really. Um, yeah. No, I can, em- yeah. Yeah. I can empathize worked. with it, with that. I mean, it, it just, it seems like, you know, not something that you, you want to have to deal with. Uh, and especially you're, you must've been quite perceptive to pick it up at that age, but uh, you wouldn't want to have to, to deal with that throughout your uh uh, playing the game at that age. No, I mean, I. No, I mean, it. You know, from other sports, people would know the name. They'd know the name when I was playing cricket or football or rugby. You know, there were 
where I was lucky enough to go to school at the Millfield Prep School and then the senior school, there were a lot of kind of old sports stars from back in the day that were coaching rugby, cricket, hockey, and they all knew who my dad was. So, you know, there was always that connection of knowing my name, but I just really enjoyed being in a team environment, backing people up and then backing you up and having that camaraderie. Yeah. Um, and I kind of go back to that later in the interview about kind of my individual career and also my, my playing for various teams around the world in, in Europe and everything. Um, but yeah, so I, I carried on, uh, did my A-levels. I wasn't perceived as particularly academic, but that was only because I wasn't interested. And I finally got to do three subjects that I was really interested in. I did very well in my A-levels, went to Birmingham University, um, purely for the course that I was to do there. Um, drank myself into a stupor for a good, a good 12 months, uh, really quite hardcore. Then realized that that was actually a little bit boring and I didn't want to continue doing that to that extent. And I went down uh, in my beginning of my second year of university. So I'd have been kind of crossing over into 19, 20 years of age. I went down to watch um, a National League uh, match at, down at Edgebaston Priory. And I was watching Del Harris play. Mm, okay. I thought, goodness me, this is, um, this is pretty impressive. I mean, he was a fantastic physical presence and he was clubbing yeah. the ball around. It impressed me to see that. I was, I was always into my weights and strength training and he, was, he looked like a real, like he could have been a decathlete or something on a squash yeah, ball. He, he had a huge presence. Talk about aesthetic yeah. intimidation. Yeah. Not some, not some kind of like slightly dweeby looking guy ferreting around. He was really powering around, and it, and I, I and the way he was playing, I just thought, well, wow, this is really, really. I like the look of this. So then I just started playing, and I, I played. And I started off at number four in the Midland League team for Edgbaston Priory. Yeah. I was kind of nineteen and a half, um, close to twenty, and then I just got obsessed with it completely obsessed with it I was continuing doing my course studying and stuff to finish my course but I was training and I was doing loads and loads of training and then eventually I kind of said to my dad you know I want to have a go at this and he he didn't really say much to be quite honest with you I just kind of got on with it on my own in Birmingham for a, a couple of years and and um and then when he realized that I was really really serious he sent me down to Chingford I went down to train with Neil Harvey in Chingford because at the time there, there was a great group of players with Peter Nichol, um, Ong Beng Hee, and, and uh, kind of there were Tim Lover and Pete Jennifer. Well, I started with Lawrence Anjuma. So yeah, LJ, we started exactly the same time at the, at the boot camp, the Neil Harvey boot camp, which was very disciplined and very hard work physically. Um, I'd never trained. Uh, LJ tells a great story uh, uh, on the podcast. He mentioned that when he went there, he was like, maybe like, maybe a different situation from you, but he go, he went there and uh, sort of was lost and uh, said something to Neil, something to the effect of, um, I don't know if I want to be here. Uh, I'm not sure what to do. And Neil said to him, grow up. <laughs> he would have, he would have, that was probably the polite version. Uh, okay. they would the polite. There would have been, there'd have been a lot more, uh, a lot more behind that with Neil. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he was straight to the point, Neil. I mean, he he was tough. I mean, he was hard-nosed. That's the way he played, and that's the way he coached. Um, and that's the way me, you played, from what I could see. Uh, I saw I saw a little bit of your match. Uh, uh, I'm Canadian, so I saw a, a classic comeback against uh, Graham Riding there that's on YouTube. 
yeah. you demonstrated, uh, you know, you, you were all business, uh, even when you were down, whatever it was, uh, two, 10 yeah, or I mean, something. Was, yeah, it was, it was something, some ludicrous comeback, but I was always, always was taught, uh, to play every point like match point. And sometimes that kind of could have worked against me. I used to get a bit too kind of worked up, but, um, I always thought, always thought I never, I, and I still can't understand to this day, if you're healthy and you're, you know, you've still got, and you're down. I don't understand why you see players, even sometimes at the top level, just giving up stuff. I, yeah. it's not in my mentality to be like that. Um, you know, uh, I've just not been brought up like that. So I always fought like a dog, even if I was way down or whatever, I'd come off fighting because I couldn't live with myself if I'd lost and I'd just kind of been a bit of a wet flannel and just, you know, that wasn't me and it's yeah. never been me. Um, but yeah, no, the Neil Harvey boot camp that was, I rang up my dad because I'd never done two sessions a day. Um, so I would have been 21 years of age. I was 21 years of age when I went down there. I still hadn't joined PSA yeah. and I was doing two specific squash sessions a day and my body was absolutely, it felt horrendous. It felt, and I, I was in a panic and I was very upset. I was ringing up my dad and I was kind of not close. I was close to tears really. Cause one, I was hurting and two, I just, didn't think my body was being made to be able to take this training. And I was having so much pain in my hips. And he said, look, just stay with it. Stay with it. Your body's adjusting. Your body's adjusting. Yeah. You've not done this training. He would know, wouldn't he? Yeah, well, exactly. So I did. And I stuck with it. And then suddenly, I mean, it just, it's crazy to know the healing properties of the body and what the body puts up with from not just abusing it with alcohol and narcotics, but with training. And, uh, and I, um, and I, uh, it came round and I started and then it just, I was like a kind of beast really. I just started consuming all the training, which I loved. And, and I got strong very, very quickly at that age and, and, you know, got myself ready to join the PSA tour. Yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely. I noticed that in the games, a couple of the games that I, I watched uh, and that, that match against uh, Graham riding there, that that's been on YouTube for a while. And uh, it's definitely you, you imposed your physicality, but not only that, I mean, uh, tactically you played brilliantly in that game as well. And, and I'm assuming that's how, uh, how you, you played uh, when on your best day. Yeah. I mean, I, I always, I could have, I used to get very nervous and that was, Going back to not playing a competitive junior career, mm. I think that was uh, you know a huge factor in me. I, was, I got very nervous. Nerves were a big issue for me when I was playing on the PSA, um, and these other players that I was playing against had all had these established careers. I was one of the fastest players to go from you know being at the bottom of the tree to top thirty in the world, but I plateaued between kind of twenty and thirty, and I got to a stage where. There was one particular season where I was starting to get some really big wins, uh, beating a few of the top 10 guys and starting to really push through. But then on the other side of the coin, I would then suddenly have a loss to someone that you know I shouldn't lose to. And right. that was kind of balancing out my ranking. But from an actual level point of view, I, I knew I could play a very, very, very high level, very high level, but it was trying to balance that consistency. And as I was trying to challenge that and sort that out, my body started to break down because I'd, I'd kind of overtrained because I was catching up. So I'd started late and then I got overzealous with the training. I got really hungry and fanatical about it. And I, to be quite honest with you, if I hold my hands up, I'd probably overtrained a bit too much. And I started to get quite a few injuries in my early thirties um, 
that were really starting to plague me, to be honest with you. Yeah. Is there any part of you that maybe, you know, you think back and say, maybe if I had started as a junior, who knows what I could have done? Yeah, I mean, there's that. There's that factor, definitely. But knowing me as the personality and the person that I am and what's kind of happening now with my my TV career, I just, I don't know if it, it, it would have killed me off mentally. I mean, I look at the, you know, some of these kids and there's so many of these kids that you've got to remember that are, world-class juniors top juniors that have played every weekend tournaments being taken with their parents to these tournaments every weekend driven here driven there wherever it may be and then they don't play professionally and I just think it's such a waste yeah. honestly and a lot of them a majority of them actually dislike anything to do with the sport because it's kind of been kind of bludgeoned out of them by pressure from their parents and yeah. you know the playing is you know you, you've got exceptions to the rule and the exceptions to the rule are the guys that have been within pretty much 90% of it have been top juniors and they've come through to become the top players in the world. There are other guys that have come through that haven't been top juniors that have been top players in the world. Peter Nickel was a prime example. Um, But yeah, for me, I don't think I'd have had that same hunger and intensity to, to, to kind of get, get with it really. I was never pushed by my dad, but when I did decide I was going to be professional, God, he, uh, yeah. 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 Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he, he was in your corner big time. I, I do remember that. And that, that's great. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, the fact, close. The fact I mean, that he didn't push you when you were a junior to stick with it. And then the fact that when you did decide to get back into the game, that he was in your corner in such a big way. Yeah, no, he was, I mean, he was, you know, my dad and it's the same with my TV career. He just, I, his opinions gold to me because he is really is, he doesn't know how, He's probably, he's over hard on me being his son. So, you, you know, you get some parents that are the other way, a lot the other way with their kids and a lot softer. He, he's always been a probably, you know, if I hadn't been a more, a tougher individual, I'd have found it, my older brother found it a lot more difficult than I did, but I was a bit more, you know, I was a little bit more kind of like up for the fight a little bit, but he, yeah, I mean, there, there was a few instances where I had some losses that I shouldn't have had. And he basically said, you're not welcome home. Um, <laughs> right. And that that's no exaggeration either. Right. <laughs> that's no exaggeration. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to go into names. I might have probably spoken about it on Squash TV, but I don't want to go into it here. But, you know, there's, there was one particular loss I had and, and, uh, at the time, and, and I kind of relayed it on the phone, and he just basically said, you're not, you're not welcome home. You're not coming home. Right. And uh, I didn't come home. I was living at home at the time. I didn't come home for about three days. I was kind of staying with friends. And then eventually my mum was like, well, where are you? Why aren't you coming back? So I came home and then ironically, two days later, I was playing Super League, which was the three-man team league. And I beat, I had one of, uh, in league, I had one of my best wins. I beat Wilo Hindi when he's about eight in the world. Um, and it was, it was weird. It was kind of like my dad, it was one of his tests a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These yeah. mental tests that, you know, I, I after a, a bad weekend of squash, I suddenly a couple of days later, you know, managed to produce a really good win against a top 10 player. Yeah, uh, so uh, he was a, he was sort of just uh, yeah me- that was definitely a mental test, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he would do yeah. I mean, his foresight was is obviously second to none. So yeah. it just depended on you as the individual. But um, yeah, I mean, he was he got very involved with it. You know, emotionally very involved with with what was happening. I mean, I another story that was quite was quite tough to. Well, I dealt with it because I've made the choice. But when I came onto the scene, I was playing a British Open and there hadn't really been many articles in the in the papers at that period of time. There wasn't 
squash wasn't being published in the main national newspapers and and then I played this British Open and uh, the Colin, I think it's Colin McQuillan was writing and he got this thing published about Barrington. Barrington does not live up to his father. Or something. <laughs> so, I, I read that was in the Telegraph, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It, I think it was Times or Telegraph. It might have been Times yeah. actually. And okay. It was really negative, obviously. And I just thought, you know what? I really don't give a shit. I'm just going to, um, you know, this is, I've decided to do this. I'm doing this for me. I'm not doing it for my dad. I'm doing it because I want to do it. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, I'm going to crack on and get my head down and I did but it was just ironic because it seized upon the moment even if it was going to be negative that it was going to be some type of headline yeah. and that was just the choice I made coming with you know the background and name that I I have really yeah I guess that's something you you when, once you decided yourself okay I'm going to give this a shot it was probably something that you considered you know I've got to ignore uh, all that stuff and just be be myself yeah, yeah, no, completely. There was loads of murmurings around. Oh, he, you know, he wasn't a, he didn't play. He hardly played any junior squash. I mean, he hardly played any squash when he was younger. And how can he be a top professional? And I, I became a top professional. You know, I was top twenty-four in the world, and I played for England. And and you know, I, like I said, had some terrific wins. And yeah. you know, considering I'd come into it completely differently to everyone else, I was looking back on it now. I'm quite, you know, quite proud of it. Really, obviously, there's, there's there's regrets and results where if, if, and if, and if, and if, and all but, and if, and but, and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I had a good go at it really. And, um, and I did okay. I did okay. Absolutely. I, I, did, yeah. I did enough. I did enough and experienced enough to be able to sit there with my father's background, um, and talk about it on, uh, television. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I live next door to my father. I speak with my father on a daily basis, particularly when, there's events on, we're talking about players, we're talking about what's going on. So, you know, if you get people that say, well, uh, you know, he's leading squash TV and, and everything else, and, 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 but he wasn't world number one or world number two or world number three. Well, I've got a very, very good ranking. I beat some of the top players in the yeah. world. I've got one of the legends of the game that I get to speak to on a regular basis about what's going on. He's still heavily involved with squash. He watches all of it. And that to me is, you know, that gives you pedigree. That gives you pedigree. Absolutely, to, yeah. Well, I remember, to, I mean, your dad, uh, when, when I think it was, it was on, well, I watched it on Star, Star Sports, which, which is in Asia. Uh, and uh, he did a lot of the Hong Kong Open matches uh, back then. In the mid to late 90s, he was uh, the commentator. And his, uh, his commentating was just, it was the best. Uh, just oh, describe a rally and uh, you know yeah. and, and some of the I mean some of the British uh, colloquialisms that I, I kind of didn't understand at the time like the, the purple patch and the, uh, the, the five on the trot or, and, and all this stuff uh, I really uh, really enjoyed uh, what he brought to the commentators booth he's so articulate I mean he's you know he can captivate an audience he never he's never pre-prepared speeches he always will stand there and he'll talk. He doesn't have notes. He never has done. He's always taught. He's always done it that way. I was lucky enough. It was pretty um, special to be able to, in the early years of commentary, being able to do some commentaries with him. So at World Series finals, Canary Wharf, going back to James Wolstrop again, Jerry, we both were commentating together on that fantastic Nick Matthew, James Wolstrop semi-final at Canary Wharf. I think it was 2000. Well, Is that the one where crazy. Nick was, uh, he had something wrong with his back or something, didn't he? Or there was an injury? No, or, no, 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 Nick was fine. That was okay. where James had to concede 
the, the, the literally the match point because he couldn't get up from the floor because he was cramping oh, so much. Right, right, all the way. It's one of the best matches I've ever witnessed on Squash TV. Um, and uh, it was, it would have been actually earlier than 2012. It might have been 2010 or 11, but it was epic, an epic battle. And I got to commentate on that with my father. Wow. And that, that was really special to lead the commentary and have my dad as the colour. It was um, pretty awesome. There's not many sports that you can have that kind of situation. Yeah. Now, you're, uh, just to talk about your dad's game, I mean, obviously he's a six, uh, six-time British Open title, uh, British Open champion between 67 and 73 before you uh, came into the world. Uh, were you able to access, uh, I'm sure you were, uh, any, uh, any of his old playing uh, footage? And how would you describe his game to the, the younger people who might be listening that, you know, obviously they know who Jonah Barrington is, but may have never seen him uh, play before? Um, I mean, it, yeah, I have, and, and just one of the podcasts you did with Rob Owen. Rob, I had all the all my VHS tapes, all Dad's VHS tapes of uh, him playing you know, a good amount, and managed to get them to Rob Owen, who ups, got them upscaled to DVD. So I've got them on DVD. I mean, I will at some point chuck a few out on YouTube and on on, on some of the Facebooks oh, and things, yeah. so that people would. But I mean, talking about a presence, I mean. Or as just watching on tape him coming in. I mean, it was just unreal. There's just special people that have these auras, whether they're, you know, movie stars, pop stars, obviously sports stars, and he was well in the mix. I personally, he always talked himself down. I mean, to achieve what he achieved, I mean, six British Opens at the time of the World Championships, he turned squash from being an amateur, stuffy-nosed public schoolboy sport in England to a professional sport for everyone and that's where the boom started with all these clubs being built all over the yeah, world he brought squash to the masses didn't he i, I remember yeah, he he was on on these like reality fitness shows that they had back yeah, in the day he was, <laughs> he was in superstars twice he was yeah. even now you know you mentioned the name people still know that name i mean they still yeah. know that name over there completely outside of squash um but he he got a group of the best players in the world from different countries paid for them himself, took them round to these different major countries, playing, taught, set up exhibition tournaments that they would create with the top eight players, as it he were. He did one with uh, Sharif Khan, I think. I, uh, yeah, I, I had Rob Dinnerman on, and he talked yeah, about some yeah. sort of circus, they called it. I forget the name. Yeah, they, they, yeah. I mean, it was... Um, and that's, that's how the professional game started, and that is exactly how the professional game started. So the PSA World Tour, what you see now is the product of what my father started. Um, but he was always very hard on himself about his talent and stuff. And you can work as hard as a dervish and you can, you know, work and work and work. But if you've not got the um, skills and the, the, physical, the physical skills of physiology, the technical skills and the mentality, there's no way you can achieve what he achieved in, in a sport. But he always plays himself down that he was just this running machine. Right. Um, getting balls back and I, I can assure you particularly as he got older I mean it's so cool to see him play certain shots that are just kind of Shabana-esque with a wooden racket where there's yeah. holds there's flips, there's angles and people don't realize that because obviously they didn't get to see that but I will release some really cool clips at some point of him playing and um, it is really magical to see and he had a very very as he got older his short game got better and better and it actually got quite ruthless and that's why he was able to be top eight in the world when he was 39 40 years of age i mean it's right. crazy 
right. You know, yeah. it wasn't because he was running around, Jerry. He wasn't running around like a, a dingbat. <laughs> uh, 30, 38, 39 years old. Who's doing that? He, you know, he had to adapt his game, and he did. And, um, you know, he, he, for a player, and I always said this about Jan Chikan, for me, that's the best player. That's a complete player. Somebody that was an absorbing so-called retrieving machine, doing it with brilliant ball control like Jan Chikan, my dad, to then Jancha in his later years becoming completely ruthless, chopping rallies in three shots. And, yeah, it's so, such good hands, yeah. eh? I mean, uh, something that just goes unmentioned a lot with his game is yeah, how, how skillful and, and he was. Yeah, and, and, and Dad, you know, Dad had a very similar scenario in that way and used to watch him practice as a kid and like the Knicks that we, we reduced and the accuracy of his short work is just, just unreal. I mean, he, he was ghosting and, and practicing up until a few years ago. And he's 70, he's 70. Still ghosting in the backyard with the, with the he's not, he's not, he's not ghosting. He's not ghosting anymore. He stopped ghosting a couple of years ago, but up until a couple of years ago, he was still in his underpants in the garden when it was sunny. When we went on holiday, there was a funny time we were in holiday in South Africa and he mapped out the court. This was back in the late eighties. He mapped out a court and the sand and um, me and my bro were just there, kind of just chilling, just on the beach watching. And he had his racket and his shoes on, and he was basically ghosting nonstop for about an hour. And by the end of the hour, there was probably about 200 people watching him <laughs> okay. on the beach. Did they even know what squash was? Would they? <laughs> I don't know. I think they were yeah. just so fascinated by this guy with long black hair, swatting invisible kind of flies or whatever and and in his kind of nut cruncher uh speedos and you know just it's just unbelievable but it was just that's the kind of that's the effect yeah. he had on people um now he's on the concept to rowing machine he does weights he still does his weights and stuff but he's he rows the atlantic every day my little boy watches him and can't believe what granddad's kind of doing on the rowing machine that's awesome yeah you mentioned uh i guess in an interview uh on squash site a while ago that uh quote unquote it's a it's a load of rubbish to describe your father's coaching as one dimensional uh in the physical side so in fact uh like you just mentioned he he was a master tactician as well he famously uh, uh, Mar- uh mohammed uh, el sherbagi uh came to him for for coaching uh, and we know what what uh, happened to mohammed so give us some insight in terms of uh your dad uh, in, as a master tactician on the coaching side of things well, my dad basically, I mean, from the mental side of the game, I mean, there's a book he published called Murder and Squash Court, which is, yep. again, it's something I want to republish. I mean, it is just, you, you don't have to be a squash player to read it and enjoy it. It's basically a whole psychology. All the old school squash players, like my, my dad, uh, my dad, uh, my friend's fathers, and, and uh, all, all those guys who played squash have read it. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of people. I mean, I get emails probably nearly nearly daily to be quite honest with you from people I don't know asking about when how they can get a hold of it people are people are selling it with his signature on Amazon for nearly 200 pounds and all the rest of it but (laughs) the um what that aggravates me massively because it's just ignorant people that just have no idea but with my dad he always adapted um and Rob Owen touches on this uh, a bit, I think, in the podcast with you. But he yeah. always adapted. He never employed his necessarily his training methods to the players he was coaching. He always adapted to body types. So, for instance, things like court sprints, he was never massively big on. They would be something in a circuit. 
But unlike the Australians, my dad wouldn't have players doing, you know, thousands and thousands of court sprints because he knew exactly the effect it had on the back and, and on the hips and all the rest of it. And if you were a tall player and you were being coached by my dad, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. He just would not put that player in there. So he adapted. There was a lot of ghosting because that for me is outside of a practice match of playing somebody your level or above a ghosting session is some of the best conditioning and movement, uh, technical movement training you can do for squash. He, he probably he invented, uh, he invented, he invented ghosting, ghosting, didn't he? Yes. He invented ghosting. So he started ghosting because, uh, when he moved to the Midlands, uh, kind of, he was probably early thirties. Then he was struggling for players to play in between these big tournaments. The Australians always stuck together. So, um, Jeff Hunt always had kind of Cam Nankaro, Ken Hisko and, and a lot of other players that they played. The Pakistanis obviously had a lot of players they played. They, they had their groups. My dad was kind of a little bit on his own in that respect. They would come to him later on, but he had to, he had to kind of replicate squash. So going out running just wasn't enough for him to, to get that physical workout, to get the movement, the speed, the agility. So he started experimenting with shadow movement. And he called it ghosting and he came up with all the different variations of, of it. And, and if he painted that, he would be a very wealthy man today. But he is, um, he's the founder of ghosting. He was the one that invented it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, in terms of, I brought it up earlier. Um, I alluded to the, the aesthetic uh, intimidation factor. And I think I read somewhere that uh, he, that was with respect to, you know, you know, obviously being, quite fit looking quite fit but also the having a nice uh, dark tan uh, when you had hit the courts yeah. now one of his uh, uh obviously mohammed el shabagi i met him in, in dubai and i've seen we've seen him on court he definitely has what i would call so it, not not the dark uh, he's not out on the beach sun tanning all the time but he has the intimidation factor as well not only on court but even off the court, a really nice guy, but he just has this presence. Is that something that perhaps uh, maybe your father had an influence on in terms of adding that flavor to uh, to his game, or is that just Mohammed him, himself? I think no. My dad wouldn't go to the kind of. He wouldn't go, I know, kind of. I know exactly what you're talking getting getting at in that way with Mohammed. But my dad, my dad didn't have that. Um, he would he wouldn't have that kind of strutting around type it, that right. side of it just wasn't him. Um, what was him is that he believed in, and this was going back to the fantastic Australian players, sportsmen, you know, my dad loves all sports and he was a very good friend of Ron Clark and the, the great runner. And, and he was always Brown and tanned and looked very fit. And, and as a, <laughs> as a the Caucasian, as a white person, you know, and I, I joke about it now because PJ and I are from the same school of, you know, if you can get a tan, lovely, get a tan because it's fantastic. Whereas I've got to be honest with you, majority of the Caucasian squash players today look like they are kind of Casper ghosts. And, 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 and going back, this is a funny thing, but it's true. That would be a good nickname for someone if you... Uh, yeah, I know, Casper. I know. Going back, going back to Mr. Wilstrop. Now, James Wilstrop doesn't like the sun, okay? He doesn't like right. the sun. And there was a period of time, and this is where I... I'll go into it later about my relationship with PJ and the jokes we have, but he was struggling big time. He was, he was uh, getting ill. He was, uh, he was really struggling on court. This was a serious factor. Obviously it was affecting his PJ suddenly got it into his mind that 
James being a vegetarian wasn't getting enough you know, enough nutrients or he had a bread allergy. He got this bread thing. PJ suddenly became, I think BJ was trying like a bread diet, not having any bread or something. He was going through a phase of this in his, in his life, a cycle of maybe two weeks or something. Yeah. And he was, he, he, he was convinced that James had a, a bread allergy. And then I, I got a message from Vanessa or someone saying, well, James doesn't really eat very much bread. So I'm not sure what PJ's talking about. And then I thought, I just said, I said, I bet you it's, um, it's something to do with the sun. I bet you it's a vitamin D situation. Anyway, long story short, he has to take a vitamin D supplement, James Wallstrop, because he doesn't get enough sun. <laughs> doesn't get enough light. Yeah, yeah. And this was, this was what was causing these colds and, and him feeling quite kind of lethargic and all the rest of it. So, you know, going back to that side of things, it was for my dad, he, he would go specifically before the British Open, he'd go and train in Kenya at altitude. So people knew he was at altitude. They knew he was training hard. He'd get obviously a fantastic tan. He'd come back to the British Open back then, I think they were still wearing the all whites. So he stood out unbelievably. Yeah. And already he probably got through the first two rounds just on presence and on that intimidating factor, not the fact that he was <laughs> strutting around like, you know, a UFC guy. It's nothing like that. It was just purely <laughs> the turn up and people were like, shit, uh, we, he, he looks even fitter than usual. This is going to be really, really tough. Yeah, I, I mean, the way I looked, the way I read into it with the aesthetic intimidation, it was more sort of a, a kind of a, a gamesmanship type of thing, but in a, in a funny way, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know no. if you've ever read that book, the book by Stephen Potter, uh, game, uh, How to Win Without Cheating. No, but um, no, it's a great one. You, you should look yeah, it up. Uh, but but the, I think that's one of the things in there. Look, look the part, you know. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah I mean, from a television aspect. I mean, you've got to, you know, for, you know, as, as, as pundits, as the players, as these players representing our sport are on a level now that's being shown all around the world, which has never been done before to this extent on TV, these guys have got to look the part, you know, they've got to look the part. The young kids growing up and, and everything else, they look to that. Everyone's very fashion orientated, you know, it's more and more in, in this day and age and, well, you've got and a few guys out there like that that are, are stepping their games up in that way. I mean, firstly, uh, you've got the intimidating fitness factor of a guy like Paul Cole. He steps on the court. He's one of your eye guys, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. He steps on the court and he just looks like, okay, this guy's uh, not going to – I'm not going to be able to dispose of him. He's too fit, too strong. Yeah. And then you've got no. a, another eye guy like uh, Miguel Rodriguez who's wearing two different colored shoes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's – and the kids love it, you know. I mean, yeah. the younger, at the end of the day, you've got to look to the younger generations. They're the future. And, and the fact that you've got stuff like that going on is, is, is wonderful for them from a fashion point of view. And Mohammed always looks immaculate. And, and uh, you know, all these guys, they really are trying to up their game with it. And they should do. They're a product. You know, you look good on TV, you're going to get more sponsors. People are going to be more interested in you, more marketability. So it's a no-brainer not to look like you've just come out of a, you know, a, a second-hand laundry, if you know what I mean. <laughs> like, like JP sometimes. <laughs> you know, wash, wash your whites with your, as PJ would say, wash your whites with your whites and your colors with your colors. Don't mix them up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But the, I mean, the guys you have uh, on uh, on your team at I, I mean, they obviously it's part of the part of the brand. I think it, it all you got. The, they all look pretty good and pretty fashionable. Yeah, it's a young brand. I mean, it's it's a company that's run by young young guys that are squash players, and you know that we we want to make good stuff that's really 
good quality that feels nice to wear, makes you look good, plays well. It's not, it's not rocket science. We're not kind of, we're not uh, making rackets that have got kryptonite in them or aerogel or whatever it is. They're just normal rackets because none of that stuff exists. It's just graphite and carbon and, and where you, where you put it in the rackets, you know what I mean? It's, it's like where you situate it in the rackets to get the balance and stiffness. It, there's an art to it in that respect, but all this kind of promotion of, of stuff that uh, just doesn't exist, it's just it's the same materials being used. It's just how much you put in and how you distribute it from a racket point of view. And, you know, we just want, ideally, it'd be just nice for people outside of squash to see this, the gear and, and, some, and wear it kind of outside. Then you know that you're making a pretty cool brand, you know, and, and it's, it's good fun and, and it's nice to get the characters. We're moving into the ladies side of it as well, um, which is good. And, and it's, it's a nice, it's, it's, it, from a playing point of view, I was always interested in, 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 in fashion and clothes and Well, you everything. pushed the envelope a bit. You went, you, you were sleeveless oh, for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I look back and I just think, you know, obviously as I think everyone does, but, yeah, I mean, I, at one stage I was because I was sponsored by Kappa, which was a wicked. Um, it was the old kind of soccer and athletics, and they was they were sponsoring yeah, yeah. the football Italian team. And I used to get these kind of beautiful material gear, and I one stage was playing in long socks. I had socks pulled right up, and these weren't the recovery socks yeah, you, that the players. I think it was you. You and Linku uh, started that trend, didn't you? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I I mean, I look back and I think I look like a right Wally, but I just. Um, <laughs> I just kind of was doing something a bit different at the time. And, and I, I'll tell you one thing, I got bloody hot wearing it because the shorts were quite, quite long. And then I had my long socks. So basically just my kneecaps were poking out with a bit of thigh. And then, and then I was still wearing kind of slightly longer t-shirts as well. So you, you, were, you were just wearing the long socks. Were, were they the same? Were they like the, um, the same type of material that, that Linku and the, and a lot of some of the guys still wear today just to keep the, the lower leg uh, warm oh, or, or it, keep, uh, it worked. It, worked. It, made, it made my calves. I didn't at that stage in my career, I wasn't getting any calf problems, thankfully, but it made my calves, it made my calves feel quite warm, which I did like the sensation of it. Um, it but you just looked, it, it looked extraordinary because obviously I had long hair and a bandana. So there was a lot going on. Um, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Going on. yeah. It was, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on, but, yeah, I played the short sleeve tops. Uh, Lee Beecher used to get really pissed off with me with those because he used to think I'd sweat it all over him. But right. know, I, I um, he used to give me a real hard time if he's like, "Oh, you're not wearing one of those again." Like if I turned up on court with him, uh, and you know that type of thing, which made me just want to wear them more. Really, to be quite honest with you. But yeah, yeah, that's a little edge you'd have over him. Yeah, it was just a bit of experimentation and just trying to change it up a little bit. I found that you know that that phase coming out of the the early 2000s and 90s, it was all pretty boring and pretty terrible, the gear. So it was nice to have a brand that wasn't a squash brand that was that was a well-made Italian brand that was producing some quite interesting sportswear. So I enjoyed that. Um, so coming back from being a player, yes, being involved now with TV and, and being involved with kind of trying to develop the brand and mm. the products, it's, it's really cool uh, angles come from. It's nice to yeah. kind of come see the game in a different way now completely different yeah the shoes i really like like the look of the shoes is um uh declan is uh james is he with i as well yeah we got Declan. Yeah. he's got those uh the sky blue ones uh, that he wears i like i like that color 
Yeah, we've got lots of cool colors. We've got more colors coming as well. And, and another design of shoe actually as well, a different type of design shoe, which could suit other people. Cause there's, you know, there's, there's different tastes for style of, styles of shoe in terms of the layout of the shoe. Yeah. Um, but we've some stuff uh, so as I said, uh, the world junior champion using our clothing. We've got cream Abdul for clothing and shoes. Uh, Diego Elias for shoes now. Uh, Borja Gola is still using our stuff. He's you know in the very yeah, he's using the rackets uh, as well. Yeah, rackets yeah. and clothing, and we mix it up with who kind of uses what and everything else. And obviously, Paul Cole is. Well, he's got his own clothing line coming out or something, doesn't he? He, does, he has a casual line that he does, yeah. yeah. That he's, he, again, he's very interested in that side of things. So, you know, it's, it's nice. It's nice for a player to have these, these interests, you know, in these things and, and being, yeah. I like that. You know, I like the fact that he's doing that and it means that he takes it very seriously and, and, it, and it, it just adds to the growing the game. I mean, at the end of the day, well, this is all... He's uh, definitely branded himself really well, I, I think. I mean, he's got, you know, he's obviously a great player, but he, you know, he's done it in such a way where he, he's put himself out there. He puts his videos of his training out there. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, the majority of the top guys, Miguel's very, very good with that. And mm-hmm. Nick Matthew, you know, does a huge amount more so now he's retired. Gregory Gaultier is not so interested in that. He's more interested in winning matches, which, you know, you could say is old school. And I like that as well because I'm not a massive social media person. I'm, I'm, um, I do posts and things, but it's not something I base my day on. I, I try to just live my day um, without thinking about that type of thing and everything. Yeah. I'll post some stuff that I think is possibly funny, but um, <laughs> I, I just, I'm not, I'm not that way inclined, which from a TV aspect, you kind of need to be a little bit, but I just kind of like to do my work and do a good job on Well, I think if you uh, did decide to go into social media uh, in that way, you, you'd definitely, uh, you, you'd, you'd have some funny stuff to, to, uh, to present because you're funny on TV. So Yeah, we, we have a when lot. you of, want to be. We, when I want to be, we have a lot of fun. Yeah, we have a lot of fun doing it. I mean, we do a lot of matches and, you get people that tune in and they're like, oh, they're being this or being that. And it's like, we do a huge amount of matches. We know the players inside out. We know, as I say, the idiosyncrasies, the behind the scenes stuff without giving too much detail away that's personal about the players. Yeah. And it's really funny. There's some very funny things that happen. And a general viewer watching somewhere in the world that doesn't know these players, follows squash but doesn't know the players, doesn't know that. So we try to relay it across you know, as, as much as we can. Yeah, and I've got to be, you know, when there is a big silence, when there is a big silence in the commentary, <laughs> that's generally where either PJ and I are beating the living shit out of each other, or we are laughing so hard that we just can't even speak. Yeah, yeah. So that's why. Yeah, there, 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 there are occasions where you wonder where'd they go. So that must be. <laughs> but uh, what I what I noticed too, though, is you guys, um, there's a really good balance there because I I noticed this. You you have a good time, especially during the early matches. But when it comes to uh, crunch time at the end, uh, it, it's all uh, it's really good commentary. Yeah, we really up our, we have to up our game. We want to, and it and it's important. Like I say, we do a huge amount of volume of matches and. Now we're doing the camera stuff and the mini studios, which we're doing now, which are really cool with Pete, myself and PJ and Vanessa and Lee Drews um, kind of being brought into that to do a bit of roaming and yeah. interviewing. So it's a really colorful live show. What we're trying to do now is that basically from the players coming, coming onto court, there's a huge amount of dead space from a TV aspect. 
where there's these big announcements, players come onto court, and then there's this huge gap of them knocking up. And and that's fine, but it just kind of slightly kills the program to then restart it when they serve. So we're doing our camera stuff. We've got all the graphics coming in, obviously the bios and the head-to-heads and all that. But we're just kind of giving you a bit more color to the show. And I think it's working really well. And that kind of was apparent in New York. And, and we're going to continue with that format moving through the season. Um, and we've got a good team of people. We've got a good variety with Johnny Williams, Simon Park. Yeah. Lee Drew, Vanessa, Ashling Blake, who's, you know, the Irish girl is very yeah, yeah. quirky. Yeah. You know, she's got a good sense of humor and a nice voice, you know, a nice voice to listen to. Um, so we, we've got a good mix of, of kind of accents and people really. Um, so it's, it's kind of working, working well in that way. And um, it's our 10th year. God, it's, that was my 10th TOC in January last month. Ten so years. 10 years, because I was still playing for the first few years while I was commentating. I was doing both, which was pretty tough going. Yeah. Um, I eventually had to make a decision, you know, what I was going to do. And I obviously went for the TV. Right. Now you'll, you'll be heading to, uh, to Chicago uh, in a few days, I would imagine. Um, now there, really, there are several players who could emerge victorious on both sides. But as we talked about earlier, the, the men's might be slightly more predictable. The way I see it is uh, it's uh, Mohamed Al-Shurbagi, although he, he didn't play in the national uh, Egyptian championships. I'm not sure why. And uh, Ali Farag seemed to have the edge there. But uh, uh, perhaps the same could be the same for the women, uh, said for the women, nor uh, Al-Shurbini and Renin. But uh, there's a bit more depth on the women's side. Um, how do you see things playing out uh, on the men's uh, uh, side? I mean, World Open? the fact that Mohamed Al-Shabagi lost to, lost, uh, to Ali Farag in, um, and what happened. I mean, he shouldn't have lost to Ali Farag in the TOC. He was two love up and six, whatever it was up. And yeah. it shouldn't have happened. And he did. I can assure you of this. He will be absolutely out for blood in Chicago. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. He got through that one and won. For me, he wouldn't be he wouldn't be as dangerous in Chicago this time around. He's going to be mega dangerous, and the fact that he loses world number one spot in the March rankings, no matter what, because obviously the world champs bleeds over into March, so it's not counted. But it's counted on February, where there's no these guys not really playing a PSA in February that counts their points. So Farag will be the new world number one in March. Right. Um, so that's going to drive just, him as well. Yeah, hugely, massively. Yeah. I mean, it's not, and obviously there's a huge prize fund involved, which is going to drive all of them. And um, I'm trying to, I'm very positive about it. I, I'm sad that Gaultier is not in it because he's such an asset to the sport and has been, is one of the greatest players ever. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. That, that puts it down at a very, very sad, obviously, that Rami Shaw is not in it. But, you know, you've got, have you yeah, heard yeah. Uh, Have you heard anything uh, about Rami? By the way, I mean, is have we seen the last of him, or, or do you, do you reckon that he he has something left? I don't know. I mean, he's got apparently some arthritic issues in that knee on, on the leg that's a bit plagued him, and I don't know. I mean, I'm really I'm always wanting to see that name in there. And then, yeah. Uh, um, again, he, when he's not in an event, there is we're getting more used to it now because he hasn't been in the event for so long, but there is always a bit of a, a flat lining on the tournaments, so to say, and that's not taking anything away from any of the other top players at all, but he's just such a maverick and such a one-off that it yeah. does create a little bit of a, a downer on the event. Um, 
I just don't know. I mean, I, the fact that he's played like he has over the years, just a couple of tournaments a year and done what he's done is extraordinary. And it's beyond his mental strength to do that. It's amazing. Um, so a lot of players would have just knocked it on the head earlier. But I'm not sure. I honestly don't know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. In my heart of hearts, I'm not sure. But like, I mean, we yeah, are... Go. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, the, uh, I mean, if I'm looking at the men's draw, I mean, there are definitely possibilities. I mean, Diego Elias could, could uh, get through. He's on Ali's side of the draw. Kareem Abdul, yeah. Kareem, I mean, yeah, the way, the best match of the tournament in the TOC was the quarterfinal between uh, uh, Diego and Mohamed. Quality of that match yeah, was oh, absolutely yeah. from, from the first serve, it was brilliant. Um, Diego, in my book, Diego, Alias, he's got a lot more. He's got to do a, a huge amount more physical training and work yeah. uh, to get stronger to be able to back up. Because when he beat Shabagi in Qatar, he couldn't even, you know, he could barely function against Rosner. Um, so he needs to learn to back up those matches if he's going to win win events. But there's no doubting his ability that he could he could be a, a future world number one. He's he's a pretty special player and character. Um, the baby-faced assassin is just—I mean, just—if this—if this was in Egypt, if this tournament was in Egypt, I would be saying, "Goodness me, the baby-faced assassin could do this," you know, because yeah. he plays off his rocker in Egypt. He won the black ball. He won the world championship back in Egypt. He—he—he he, he produces the goods in his own backyard. That's for sure. Yeah, um, I mean, you describe him as uh, silky smooth, which is exactly what he is. I, I, when he won the black ball, I, re- I watched all the matches and. Um, I just remember after the final, I was like, okay, I'm, I had, I went right up to the squash court and I played just to, and it was just so, uh, the squash was amazing. His squash. Yeah, no, that's, what, that's the effect he has. I mean, it's, it's kind of Federer, Federer-esque. I mean, yeah, he's, uh, uh, yeah. he's, um, he's, he's, when he's in that type of form, he, he, you know, he can beat all the top players in the world. So he's got himself a bit fitter. He was lucky in the t- TOC because he shouldn't have, he wouldn't have beaten Joel Makin. Joel Makin would have beaten him um, yeah. if he hadn't turned well, There was no question of that because Joel Makin was outplaying him and he wasn't good enough against Joel Makin. But he's one of these guys that can have an event like that and then suddenly bounce back and win another major event. So if he's got his head down and and I, I, what, what, where did he finish in Egyptian nationals? Not that these guys would yeah, he lost, uh, he lost in the semifinal loss to um, Ali, I think. Okay, so... Yeah, I mean he's he's still a danger man. Of course he is. He's he's yeah. in the in the, in the mix with the with with the being number five in the world. He's still a danger man. Um, so yeah. there's 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 a few there's a few in there. There's a few. There are a few there. guys in there, but then there are these other other Egyptians who could easily uh, come through. Uh, uh, Faris Do, Doseki. I mean, he's playing. Uh, yeah, Dosuki's playing very, very well. well. Yeah, Tasuki's back playing very well. You've got Abu Algar, who's yeah. who's, um, who's won a tournament, won Detroit, beat Diego in Detroit. There, he's yeah. starting to get more and more confident um, and more consistent. There's no doubting his ability with the racket. He's un- he's exceptional. And then so, the number three C, the 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 the, uh, the tree chopper. Well, the tree chopper. Well, the tree chopper will leave everything out there. We know that he'll yeah. leave everything out there, and and we'll. Um, you know, will fight to the bitter end, the tree chopper will. And, you know, it, what's going to be interesting for me, Jerry, and, you know, people take the piss out of it a little bit when they hear us because we, we repeat it so much. But 
the court conditions there. It's going to be in Union Station in Chicago. Mm. So you know, the TOC at Vanderbilt Hall is, 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 is we were doing the temp, PJ had his new toy, which is his temperature gun. Um, <laughs> okay. And, uh, and that, we were kind of averaging around 24, 25 degrees for the court temp. Wow. Wow. Okay. I'm going to be very interested what Union Station in Chicago is going to be like temperature wise. Because I would have thought it would have been cooler than that. I think it will be cooler as well. Um, cause there's, there's underfloor heating in the Vanderbilt hall in, um, in grand central. Um, but we'll have to see Jerry, because, you know, fingers crossed, we're going to get the crowds that we want for TOC. I mean, it's the world championships in union station. You hope it's going to be packed, which will add to the, the heat factor. But why I'm talking about the court temperature is it's going to, that will start to affect certain players and situations. So for instance, the tree chopper, that will help the tree chopper. Yeah. It will help the base, the stats in the increased temperature will help more shibagi. Um, so there's these factors that are very important in that, in that aspect. Yeah. Now on, on the, yeah, the women's side seems a bit, a uh, bit more open, although you still, you, you still have uh, Norel Sherbini and Raneem as, as the two favorites, but you've got a slew of others, including uh, Joel, Joel King, Tesney, uh, and Nor Norhan Gohar, who got to the final of the the women's national, uh, the Egyptians, she yeah. beat uh, she beat Raneem in the semifinal. That's yeah. I mean, she was the, nicknamed her the Terminator. She oh, she's a, she's amazing. Yeah, she she had a bit for her for her boom. She boomed on, and she was you know fun of the British Open when she was eight, 17 or eighteen against North El Shabini, and she she was really pushing hard. And then she's had a bit of a uh, up until recently had a bit of a kind of tough run of things still in the top eight in the world, but for her yeah. tough run of things, maybe very a dangerous. bit of a guard uh, moment. Yeah. I yeah. I don't know. Just, I think other, the other females being able to deal with the physicality of her and working her game out and not being so intimidated by the, the pace, you know, yeah. this kind of amazing hitting, hitting and pace. Cause they're all playing faster. They've all had to Joel King wallops the ball. She's tremendously athletic. Yeah. She now can. She believes she can win major tournaments. She won in Hong Kong, so she's going to be very dangerous. Norel Tai fights like there's no tomorrow, yeah. and she's four in the world. I mean, and this is what's fantastic, and this is what we had, you know, a few years ago with the men, where you could list them and you could say, well, any one of those five, six could win it. Um, yeah, and we can't so forget uh, Camille is also in there. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the French Panther, Le Pantier, she's known. She's, um, she's wonderful and she plays very well on US soil as well. So, you know, there's and Laura Mazzaro, you know, yeah. she's, Laura yeah. plays the big tournaments nearly as good as anyone. I mean, she never count never, her out. Yeah. No, you, you can't count her out. So, I mean, the list goes on really. And then obviously you've got Tesney Evans, Sarah Jane Perry's out at the moment, sadly. She, I think she's in the draw. She's, she's in the draw. But she didn't play in the British, no. No. So, but that's going to be hard for her. Yeah. It's going to be hard for her being out, coming back in. That's going to be very tough for her because she's, you know, certainly a player that needs mobility and, and strength in her movement. There's no doubting the way she hits the ball and her skills, but that will be tough for her coming back into the mix after that layoff. But the other yeah, she's girls, got, yeah. uh, She's got probably the best, I would say, the best hands in... Um, uh, uh, although Raneem does as well, but the best hands in women's squash, I'd say Sarah Jane. She's got lovely, yeah, she's got a lovely natural um, uh, ability with the ball and she's very deceptive. Um, she's done 
unbelievably well. She's done fantastically well for so far, and hopefully that she keeps pushing up the rankings, you know, for England squash and for international squash with those girls. What What do you guys um, think of a uh, think of her on court uh, demeanor? <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a peaky blinder, really. She's from the Birmingham area. I don't know if you've ever watched the series. Uh, yeah, I've heard. I've watched, tried tried watching it a few times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the old- blinders but she's a bit of a peaky blinder yeah she's got a strut on her yeah oh yeah yeah certainly gives those referees a hard time loves to do that and uh, yeah it's fun to watch you need you know sometimes you need even if they're not baddies you need a kind of goodie and a baddie sometimes with the situation so like i said you need characters and different personas on court otherwise it gets very dull really yeah, there are a few a few characters on the women's side too. Uh, uh, I mean, Laura Laura has her uh, her moments. No, Laura. I mean, the Ice Queen. Yeah, Norel Tibes is his character yeah. as well. Yeah, she's driving around, you know, doing doing her stuff. Tessie Evans has got a very good ability to outchat the referee. Um, <laughs> she's very quick witted. Um, yeah. That's you know it's nice to hit and not nasty with it either. She just she's just funny with it. You know she's not trying to be um, nasty. She's just saying a point and she's quite cheeky. So but that's nice. You know she's not disrespecting the refs in that way and it's just a bit of character. Um, so it's it's good to get that that balance. Like I said, and then we also have I think we uh, we'd be remiss not to mention uh, the queen uh, uh, of squash from the last generation. Anyway, she's she's Nicole in this David. one. Nicole David, seated thirteen. I mean, she. You know, I, I just had uh, Liz Irving on, and basically I asked her what 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 the goals are going forward, and they said uh, we're you know we're just having fun. Yeah, I mean she. Yeah, <laughs> I mean she. There's a lot of pressure. Obviously, she's. Done. She's been uh, one of the greats of the women's game, and 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 has won so much. And 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 frustrating for her physically. She's still very mobile, and she's had a few niggles, but nothing really. She's not slowed down for me. I just no, think she, she's. she's hurt. I don't think she was ever injured, was she? Really? No, not really. Not hardly at all. She's had a fantastic team looking after, her and she's obviously got a wonderful physique, uh, brilliant physique for squash. And yeah, you know, she. It's it's just a slightly different time, but I mean, she. She puts a lot of pressure on herself because of she's such a huge star in Malaysia. Um, you know, there's a lot of expectation still for her, and she needs to, if she can, try to enjoy it a little bit towards the end. She's won everything, and it's easier said than done. But I'd imagine, you know, she can look. She's got to look back and see what she's won, and and try to. She's still a tough. Well, I mean, you know, when she's in there, those girls, those top girls, it's still nearly a five-game thriller. She's yeah. been so close with. Uh, with Norel Shabini a few times and you know so she's still she can't you can't write her off of course you can't no definitely definitely and, and someone you probably if you're a top seed you wouldn't want to run into her uh, early in the tournament not at all absolutely not they'd be th- those girls would be very nervous running into her very nervous yeah now I've got I posted that you were coming on the podcast and I, I got a zillion uh, questions from from the uh, Facebook listeners but I'll never be able to get through them uh, I want to ask you about the Olympic bid Joey uh, just let me bear with me while I get through this um, I had Alex Goff on and he was optimistic in terms of, of the uh, the 2024 bid and uh, it's kind of obvious to me what they're kind of aiming to uh to display to to the committee uh, they're focusing a little bit more on the women's game and the gender pay gap reduction 
the international flavor of the game, which has reemerged lately, particularly with the juniors. And uh, is this sort of um, uh, how you how you see it? And maybe uh, what what would you say that squash needs to do to sort of not uh, go through the disappointment of the last uh, three or four bids that we, I mean, we had? I mean, for me, it's the, the uniting the you know the WSF and the PSA, which has been done. So you know you've not got the PSA heavily involved now with the presentation of everything, which is great because we're the shop window for the sport and. They're working alongside WSF now and that's the most important thing because it's just been kind of us and them within reason and, and, and you, should, you don't need that with the separation in sport. So it's the, main, the two major governing bodies working together. The product, you, you can't, you don't need to change the rules of squash. You know, it's all very well experimenting with the best of three and all this stuff, but the product is amazing. The women's game, as you say, is getting better and better. Um, it's extraordinary in a sport that you've got these Muslim girls that are playing, uh, yeah. dominating sport the way they are. Um, it's just fantastic uh, for them and their culture. Um, obviously, everything with the equal pay is 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 is, is wonderful from from the promotion of the sport on a worldwide basis. Participation levels worldwide have always been massive. Portability, the way you're able to take a court, uh, build it. You don't have to have these fixed. Uh, facilities that they build for Olympic Games that cost millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds. You can yeah, that's huge. Court. That's huge. A couple of hundred thousand dollars. You can build a court and stadium out by the Eiffel Tower or by wherever it may be where you're, you know, where you're having the Olympics. And then you can take it all down again. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, 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 you can't really do, you can't do that with tennis. You can't do that with really any other sport. So there's so many pluses about the game. And then, obviously, from a TV aspect, it's very watchable, and you can be, you can be a non non squash player and sit there and 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 really enjoy what's going on. You know, you see the the angles are great. The video review is excellent because it helps us, even though we get it wrong, and, <laughs> but it's it helps everyone give an opinion and it explains the subtleties between a no let stroke and a and a, a you know and a let ball, which which is why. Oh, it adds to the intrigue and the dramatic effect uh, that squat that it brings to squash. Uh, it's a complete positive, and, and you know, so there's no, for me, there's no negatives about about the game. The presentation from a, the TV side is is getting better. I, I would like to see one thing. I would like to see on a universal basis is more events uh, producing a tighter, better live show experience for for um, the crowd and, and for what we show on TV. Yeah. Uh, an example of a tournament that's just blows my mind away every year and, and is the non-event, the smaller PSA event that's becoming a big PSA this year, thankfully. And the way they produced it last year was in the Opera House. I mean, it's just stuff like that. It's just brilliant. And that's what, there needs to be more consistency with that. Sorry, where, where was this again, Joey? Yeah. Uh, uh, Nantes in France. Oh, right. they, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, you know, they've, they've changed the venue every three years. Every production's been absolutely brilliant. Yeah, they get huge soccer. crowds for that. Crowds, non-squash playing crowds. They advertise they it love around it. the city. And they love it. And the, what they do, the show they do, the way they present everything is, mass, is, is brilliant. Um, you've got people that are involved in that event that are very huge professionals in their own areas that happen to love squash. They come together as a team and they, they produce it. And I feel, I feel that this needs to be done more throughout um, uh, major events. There needs to be a bit more consistency with the live event experience for me. 
from a TV aspect and from a promotion of the sport. Apart from that, I just I don't really see where there's a need to change anything. To be honest with you, yeah, I it's just that, uh, you know, hopefully, I mean, there's always going to be the political side of it, right? So we're, yeah, well, this we're is, not sure what goes on there, so, or yeah, maybe well, we are. With, yeah, I mean, this is it, isn't it? So let's. There's, uh, you know, the president of the WSF, um, Jacques Fontaine is, is French. Uh, he's, he has some um, decent connections, I think, in the, on the Olympic side, which is a very important factor, as we know, going back to the politics of it all. And, you know, let's just hope that we get given a, an opportunity because it should have happened a long, long time ago, and it hasn't. However, the sport has continued to grow without the Olympics, but having it as an Olympic sport for me would help some of the younger countries that are trying to get involved with the sport. It would increase their participation. It would increase professional players coming out of some of these other countries that are, you know, just starting to play the sport. Um, so that's how for me it would promote the sport. Um, so yeah, uh, fingers, fingers crossed. I'm not going to get too obsessed with it. Like I have been in the past where, Everyone's been absolutely gunning, obviously, and I'm gunning for it like anyone. But it was it was such a letdown when it happened. Yeah, uh, the times that for me, you know, I'm just I hope I hope we get in big time. But I'm I'm not going to be, you know. No, I'm the same. I'm the same way. I think a lot of us, uh, most of us in the squash community, would love to see it happen. But we've been uh, down the road several times before. And it seemed, yeah. you know, we've done everything we could to to put the best uh, uh, product uh, there on the table, and nothing uh, nothing came of it. But hopefully, this time, I mean, Alex definitely uh, has got a good group behind him there uh, at the PSA and with the squash uh, uh, bid that they put together. So, yeah, I think, I mean, like I said, the union of PSA and WSF with this has been the best scenario, and fingers crossed that will be the deciding factor on it all. Now, uh, Joe, you've been tremendous uh, with your time. I just want to get, because I've got a, a million uh, questions, just a couple of them from, from uh, some of your uh, from the fans on, on Facebook and, and Twitter here. One guy, uh, Jamie uh, Maddox, he wants to know, uh, he, he loves your sense of humor. He'd like to know who your favorite comedian is. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah. One guy, and then, 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 then Moose Cambridge. I don't know if you know Moose, but Moose Cambridge uh, said it was Peter Sellers. <laughs> yeah. Peter Sellers is a massive... I mean, it was... I think growing up, I remember seeing the party where he plays an Indian chap, which is very funny, and obviously I've got to <laughs> yeah. be careful. One of the best movies ever, huh? <laughs> In this day and age, but the, obviously the, the Inspector Clouseau stuff and other characters he's played. But he always... When I was I'm very young, when I was very young, he just reminded me of my dad, so... <laughs> I kind of yeah, with the cat and stuff. You look like my dad, so I, I was kind of drawn to it a bit more. But then that humour is huge to me. But I mean, I'm I'm quite you know some of the old um, you know Tommy Cooper and um, oh, there's just I, I just love I love I mean going to the modern day stuff, the fast show, which is uh, something that I just absolutely love as well. So it's a pretty I've got quite a vast array of all that stuff, but I just. I mean, you know, I take things very seriously in life, but I, I do have, a, I'm, I'm luckily have a, a, I'd like to think a decent sense of humor and I'm blessed with that to have that because that brings a lot to things. And if you're meant to be there as a, you know, trying to slightly entertain without make, turning it into a comedy show, cause it's a professional sport, but <laughs> right. you know, there is, there is um, 
it's great to see some funny stuff, you know, involved in it. And, and I've inherited that from my dad because my dad's got a great sense of humor. He's got a fantastic sense of humor. So it's something that uh, it's obviously genetic, but yeah, there's lots of great comedians out there, but Peter Sell is certainly one of the, one of my favorites. Yeah, I'm a big Norm MacDonald fan. <laughs> Norm MacDonald, you have to explain a little. You don't know Norm MacDonald? Uh, he did the, oh, yeah. well, he's a Canadian comedian. He, yes, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Saturday Night know, Live uh, weekend update. Yeah. He did the fake no, news. Yeah, I do know him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, yeah, Saturday Night Live obviously is, uh, I love impressions. So, I mean, you know, going back to that, the kind of, um, the, the, uh, Alex, Alex Bourne impression of Trump and stuff. So I, I love <laughs> yeah. impressions and I'm, I'm quite naughty. I kind of start on camera when we're on camera, I'll start doing a few with. Uh, I, I, I like it when you pronounce squash. <laughs> <laughs> One day I'll tell you where that comes from, but at the moment that's an inside thing. Uh, okay. Just... I thought I, 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 I hear the Egyptian guys. That's the way they, they, uh, they yeah, say squash. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but uh, I've, now I've got a, a question from our mutual friend uh, Max uh, Withers. Okay, it's about the mental game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, why do Why do you believe the mental game is so key at the top level, and what does uh, What do you feel is the difference between the winner of each event and the runner up? What's their edge mentally? Can you? Well, this, uh, is, this is what. So, I mean, you could really kind of. Um, a good example of, of that, saying a winner and runner-up pairing would be the kind of Mohammed Al-Shabagi Ali Farag. Now, Ali Farag's obviously won that TOC, but he was he was nearly out to dry as usual with Mohammed Al-Shabagi there. So when you've got this kind of situation where you've got these players that are so brilliant and so high a level, the deciding factor is that mental edge that Mohammed Al-Shabagi still has for me, definitely. Um, and this kind of getting slightly getting used to being the bridesmaid slightly at that very top level mentally it's like you're being slightly subservient that might change a little bit now that he won TOC but I'm not sure I don't know if that will be slight flash in the pan we'll have to see I hope for the sport that it it's a positive um, but yeah you've got players that at the top level are matched physically and technically um, very closely um, and it gets to the stage in squash where the subtleties are so so minimal that you have to have this um, extra belief there and it's and going back to Max's question it's very important with the player that he, he deals with a lot which is uh, Miguel Rodriguez winning the British yeah. Open absolutely you know, incredible British Open because he, he he really believed he could win that and you could tell he was not there wasn't anything where you thought he was kind of you know pretending that he was going to win it but not he really believed he could win that and and he, he was able to for convert. The, just, his- sorry for interrupting. For those of the, you who may not know, Max uh, is sort of one of uh, Miguel's mental coaches. So uh, for that leading up to that event. You know, and it, yeah. it, my, dad, my dad always said that I should have, and I, I should have done really, I should have seen a sports psychologist a little bit. And I kind of thought at the time it was, oh, I don't need to, you know, it means you're not mentally strong and all the rest of it, which is a load of rubbish. Um, right, right. Sport at the very top level now, it, it's one of the most important positions, if not the most important position to have. When you've got guys that know what they're doing training-wise, physically and technically, you need someone. I mean, Muhammad al-Shabagi has it with my father and had it with my father for 
a huge amount of time. He had the asset of that mental side. So he was, you know, the amount of matches that he got him through on the phone in between games where he was struggling, um, you know, with everything was because it wasn't because of there was all this technical stuff. It was certain things that were deciding factors mentally to convert those major titles. Um, so it's the most in sports at the very highest level for me, it's they're the most important people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just one more question. I've got a question from Chris Young. Uh, he'd like to know, uh, I guess you, you guys, we see it on, on squash TV all the time and it's great. We, the debates about lets and strokes and with the video review and, and all of sort of the, uh, I guess the alleged, uh, changes that the officiating has gone through recently. Uh, what are your thoughts on the the calls in the games now that are sort of uh, you know questionable ones where there's a lot there are a lot more no lets now and then there are a lot more kind of strange uh, strokes being called and you you guys uh, aren't afraid to uh, to slack the refs on, on the uh, on the on the squash TV what what do you what's your take on that in general Joey if you were to do the stats uh, if you were to do how many decisions Per match were going on uh, probably six, even eight years ago. The amount of decisions per match were considerable on average than what they are now. Um, the approach for me to simplify it all, because even we get a bit bamboozled with a few things that get chucked in there, um, is that it, for me it's about free-flowing squash. So it's every effort to try and play the ball and within reason, every effort to get out of the way of the ball. Um, you can't just hit the ball and then suddenly leg it over to the sideboard and let your opponent go through because, you know, you're still kind of stable over the ball and you need to be balanced when you're playing your shot. But for me, to the fact there's less strokes is fantastic because there was a period I was playing through one of those periods. It was probably started yeah. off more in the 90s where strokes were just given so cheaply. It was dreadful. And, if you and guys, watch, guys would just put their racket up and say... Yeah, they, they go back expect- to watching the videos. So you are talking to me earlier in the, in the interview about my dad's videos. You go back to those videos of the kind of 70s and 80s, uh, early 80s, mid-80s. They just play the ball all the time. Always yeah. playing the ball. They're just hitting the ball and playing it. They're not like... And then there was this massive change in the 90s and through to the 2000s, all the way through to basically when we started squash TV, where the stroke hunting, even for the first few years of squash TV, the stroke hunting was just, it was just horrible. It's horrendous. Yeah. It was so out of order. It was so unnecessary. And it was just, it was basically cheating in my book and I hated it. And the fact that those strokes are being cut out now, there's been a few times where players get a bit too heavily penalized for certain things, but yeah. the strokes you know, are to be more prevalent now are the, are when a guy's just not clearing from the ball it's not not yeah. where, where and those ones are kind of odd to me yeah i mean there is for me a bit too much extreme it's gone a slightly the other way where going back to that what you made about that point about the blocking side so there was a lot of blocking a lot of stroke hunting and a lot of blocking now there's a situation where if a player's hit a bad ball and you're within reason taking your space to play a good shot then you should be entitled to do that now i do feel at times that players are being <laughs> penalised for that and given strokes against them, you know, in that scenario. So that would be my only kind of minor criticism of that approach. But I, for me, as, a, as the way I played the game, the way I see it and the way I see it moving forward outside of the squash fraternity is the most easily translated to watch is free-flowing squash, you know, less blocking, less stroke hunting. And then you've got a sport that if you're not a squash player, you can start to get to grips with and understand 
the, the intricacies of the traffic issues and everything else. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, that could be part of the, 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 the Olympic bid almost so by trying to, uh, in, in the back, in the back room, so to speak, in terms of cleaning up the offic- the the rules a bit to try to make yeah. it more appealing. I mean, it's the only sport that you're not, se- you know, it's the only racket sport that you're not separated by a net. So tennis, table tennis, badminton, paddle, all these things, you, you're separated by a net, real tennis, whatever, you're separated by a net. So there's none of this contact with the other player. Squash is unique and you need to, rather than the negative side of it, you need to sort that out, but play on the positive side. You know, you're in this court, like boxers, where you've got this kind of sixth sense going on. It's one of the only, name me a racket sport where at times you don't know where your opponent is. <laughs> right. You know, you, I mean, it, this, this needs to be, you know, um, there's another point I want to make about the sport and transcending it is just squash. But, um, you know, this is an asset and we need to kind of, cut out the rubbish of all this traffic issue because people that are looking at it from a, a committee point of view, they want to see progress with scoring and, you know, positive stuff for TV with, with the score moving along, not stop, start, amazing rally, oh, it ends in a let type thing. Okay, mm-hmm. so they're looking, these are non-squash players, they're looking for a positive outcome after every rally within reason, you know? Right. So that, that, that goes to my argument about, you know, less blocking, less stroke hunting. The other aspect which I was banging on about a while ago was the physicality of squash. Now you get anybody speaking about squash and they go, geez, you know, it's such a brutal sport. I tried to play once and you know, God, it couldn't was walk so for two weeks. Couldn't walk for two weeks. So hard. It got, you know, I couldn't believe it. And you know, you only need two players. It doesn't matter what level they are. They can be terrible, but as long as they're at the same level, they can go on there for 40 minutes and kill each other and yeah. to their own, their own level, have an amazing workout. Now, these top guys, the, the physicality of the sport is a massive factor. It's exceptional. And we're now doing it on Squash TV with the heart rate monitors. We're getting distance covered. The heart rate monitor company that uh, are involved with us now, they're bringing in calories. So we're going to be able to look at calorie okay. count. You said distance covered. All these you guys, factors. You guys will have fun with that one. Yeah, big time. And, and so... But it, it's to sell the sport. You know, this, is a, this yeah. is a brutal physical sport. These guys are some of the best trained physical athletes, not only technical, technical and mental athletes, but physical athletes as well. You know, everyone banging on about CrossFit and all the rest of it. But I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean, a, a two-hour squash match at the very highest level, I mean, it's absolutely brutal. Yeah. So, you know, that needs to be relayed and it hasn't been relayed. You know, you can and and you need you need that data on the screen. You know, you need those, those black and white figures to show what their heart rates, what their VO2 maxes are, distance covered, calories burnt. And that for me will really help sell the sport outside of squash and into the, into the fitness world, into the sports world. Because all these fads that are coming in, I said CrossFit, all this trail, all the gym stuff that changes, all these new training things that come in and go out and come in, you know, the world is is becoming more and more aware of fitness and weight training and all these type of things, and and this is an aspect of the sport I get very passionate about. At the end of the day, I mean, you if you went out and played squash tomorrow, I know you you probably I, I read somewhere I think you're you're not playing or or don't play as much, but if you went out tomorrow and played a, a tough game of squash, uh, you you'd you'd be wanting to sit down talking about it uh, on squash TV rather than walking around. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's, it's uh, such a great workout. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And like I say, you match up with any level, somebody that's the same level as you at any level, you can... 
it's, you, you can play like superheroes on there. It's brilliant. It's so good, you know? And um, so that's, that's, we're introducing all those finally, and I've been banging on about it for a good few years, but we've now got the finance and the, the right people to, to bang on about, you know, all these physicalities. And now they've developed, because I, I just answered, some of you will probably say, why aren't the Egyptians or why aren't other players using the heart rate monitors? Because a lot of them don't like having the chest strap, the old right. school chest. They don't feel comfortable with that. So, but this, this company that are involved for Chicago, fingers crossed, I think it will be there. They've got the old, um, it's like a little tab that you stick on. Yeah. So it's a tab that you stick on and it basically will record all these elements that I'm talking about well, you here. Get a watch. Some guys could wear a watch or something. They could do yeah, that. Yeah, just a little stick that they can put on that they won't feel that basically records all the stuff, the calories, heart rate, of everything. So more of the players will start to use that as well. But it's only the only factor is that because it's been the old chest strap that the Egyptians primarily haven't liked playing with that, so they haven't used it. Um but yeah, so I mean that's 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 kind of my view on that side of things. With Brilliant. Sport. Well, well, Joey, I mean you—it's almost two hours here. You've been uh, absolutely—you've been a legend. Uh, you're a legend off the court, on the court, and behind the mic. Uh, I just want to wish you uh, all the best uh, with Squash TV, with I Rackets, uh, and going to Chicago next week. Have a good have a good uh, World Open. And uh, yeah. thank you very, very much for uh, for coming on. No, it's a pleasure, Jerry. Keep doing these podcasts; they're, they're fantastic. Lots of get lots of variety in characters, and I hope that it keeps to grow. And um, you know, I really appreciate your time as well, and and all the guys that are listening, all the, all the people that are listening. And I'm very excited about Chicago, so hopefully everyone's going to tune in, and um, and we'll see some uh, some action in Chicago. Absolutely, looking forward to that, Joey. Thank you very much. Take care, Jerry. Joey Barrington, if you need him. Wow, that was great. Uh, just want to thank uh, Joey again for giving us almost two hours of his time. And we could have kept going for another two, I think, if I hadn't uh, stepped in. I had to stop myself there because, uh, you know, I could have talked for, for so much more. Uh, I had several apologies to all the, uh, the listeners who sent me questions. I could only get to a few of them. I had them all ready to go, but, uh, you know, just ran out of time there at the end. But I really appreciate Joey for the time he gave us. And uh, also uh, appreciate you guys, the listeners. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for uh, all of your suggestions, comments, likes, shares on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, stay tuned for some more uh, great podcasts upcoming thanks for listening and have a great day goodbye now